0: Trust. There's perhaps no more important ingredient to effective leadership, to productive collaboration, and to engaging stakeholders. In the world of preparedness, response, and recovery, trust is essential to achieving mission-critical objectives, serving communities, and saving lives. Trust can make or break a crisis leader, yet trust is so poorly understood. That changes today with my conversation with my guest, Ashley Reichelt. Ashley is the co-author of The Four Factors of Trust, How Organizations Can Earn Lifelong Loyalty. She co-wrote that with Amelia Dunlop. She's also a principal with Deloitte Digital. Now, Ashley has taken a deep dive into trust to better understand what it is, how you build it, and how you can improve outcomes in a wide variety of situations. I have to say, I really enjoy this book. It's It's got a solid concept behind it, but it's really practical. She, they The authors laid out a great step-by-step approach to how you can better understand trust and build it going forward. Ashley's going to share some of her experience, her research, and her conclusions with us on this episode. Ashley, welcome to Leader Readycast. Thanks, Eric. I'm delighted to be here. It's really great to have you. Now, as you know, in the book, people have a a lot of different definitions of trust, and that can be one of the challenges we face in, in getting our arms around it. So how do you define Trust.
1: You know, it's funny that you said that, because when we started our research, one of the things that we tested was, can you just ask somebody, do you trust me? And what we learned is that the definition is just not consistent enough for people to be able to answer. It's an emotion. It's it's a feeling for us. So instead of defining trust per se, what we try to do is break it into the four factors that help us to understand trust. At its core, trust really is when you make a good promise. And then when you keep that good promise, you can make a good promise by doing it with humanity and transparency and you keep that promise when you're capable and you do that reliably.
0: There you go. Those the grading, the ingredients laid out right there and I you know, I'm really happy to hear that you don't Get dogmatic about, dogmatic about a particular definition because you're right, it's very contextual. But the, the factors you lay out really describe how you get there. So, you mentioned your research. Give us a high level of view of your, of your research. Don't make my brain hurt. Um, this, this isn't a theoretical <laughs> approach. I know you have a lot of data behind your framework of the four factors. So, tell us how you got there. And I, I, you know, again, without going too, too deep in the numbers, but I think it's really significant that you have this research base behind it.
1: Well, it's cool that you read the book because you know that I'm kind of a data geek myself. And so it was really important to us to make it very research-based. But the good news for us was we weren't starting from scratch. We were starting with 40 years of of people's academic and and research around trust. So when we began our program, we started by trying to understand those pieces that drove trust, and we did that with both customers and workers. And then when we were pretty confident we had a, a system that worked, we tested it live in market. When we were confident it was usable, that's when we actually built our large data set. So we went out and we've now connected, collected two indexes so far, 500 brands over 30 sectors, and now over an 18-month period to understand who's trusted, why are they trusted, and what could we each be doing differently as organizations to go build trust.
0: That's great. Now, take us a bit into it in terms of... You know, you've know, you mentioned the four factors briefly, but you give us a little bit uh, deeper perspective down what are the four factors and how can a leader or an organization go about using them to build and maintain trust? Particularly now, we've got so much turbulence in the world, uncertainty, ambiguity, and change. What are they? How do we use them?
1: Well, you're touching on a really important point first, by the way, which is we are coming from a point of fairly low trust. Organizations like Gallup and Pew have been researching trust for the past 40 years and uh, we've only seen a decline in scores. In our own research over the last 18 months, we saw an 8% net decline in trust, which is um, shocking and unfortunate because it's harder to build trust when you have low trust. But the way we think about it is with those four factors, we describe as humanity as demonstrating empathy and kindness and treating everyone fairly. We describe transparency as openly sharing the information motives and choices you need. When you need to make a choice in straightforward and plain language, those two are intent. And we describe capability as just you know being able to do it. You have the quality products, services, and experiences that somebody's looking for, and you're able to consistently deliver on those promises and experiences. That's reliability. Those are the four factors.
0: And so is is there a one that comes first, or is this all sort of a the Venn diagram where everything overlays and you have to start where you are and, and go where you need to go?
1: That's such a great question, because in truth, you're not going to go to a restaurant that you think is going to give you food poisoning or get on a plane that's going to crash. Capability and reliability are, are almost table stakes for getting something done. And while you can differentiate yourself there, you can't not have them. Humanity and transparency tend to be what companies use to create stickiness. The most trusted leaders are the ones that hit it out of the park at all four. But to be clear, you can't be really good at one of them and terrible in the other ones and still be trusted they are, we actually use infinite loops to define them because they work so much in concert and go together.
0: That's great. You can't make a cake without all the ingredients. And that's a a good thing to remember because, you know, I really like your differentiation between competence and intent, you know, in the the world of a lot of our listeners and and in my personal experience with disasters and response and recovery, you know, professionals go into a community that never, before. Been into before, and they assume their good intent is recognized. Right, they're there to help, so they assume they've got some sort of trust capital in the bank, um, and they try and solve some problems through competence. And they show up with all the stuff, and they and they've got their protocols, and they start rolling, and because they're professionals, that's what they know how to do. Yet that's risky because they, the local folks don't necessarily assume the intent that the professionals assume they are. That's evident. It's not there. So what are some of the risks instead of overweighting incompetence and uh, and not diving deeply enough into humanity and transparency?
1: Well, I mean, given the state of low trust today, what you're describing is risky, because I think we can start to assume that we're not given the benefit of the doubt anymore. Mm-hmm. If fewer than, you know, 40 percent trust us, then it's difficult to assume that we're going to be trusted going right in. Um, what I think a lot of companies miss, or a lot of organizations miss, is that humanity and transparency are really what create that stickiness. Nobody's going to come to your store if they don't want something, what they want to buy what you're selling. But the reason they come back is because they feel like you treated them as a human being, you were able to deliver on the things that they need. And really importantly, when something goes wrong, you don't just apologize, you fix it. And then you try to make sure that you fix it going forward so that you don't repeat the mistake. We've been working with a number of companies, and one of my favorite examples is an airline that we worked with this summer. The airlines had a rough summer, a lot of delays. It was pretty difficult. Um, But what we saw in our data was that when a passenger trusted this airline and they were late, we saw no change to their scores. But when a passenger didn't trust the airline and they were delayed, we saw a negative 30% hit to their scores. And this is understandable, right? I mean, we've all flown. You can picture it. If you trust the airline, you're just thinking, okay, weather happens. I've been on these before. It, you're doing the best you can. If you're a passenger that's not trusting the airline, you're sitting there saying, okay, did you time the crew out? Are you hiding some kind of mechanical failure with this delay? What are you doing to keep me from my destination?
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a great analogy and it's really relevant, both because we had to postpone our original recording because I was delayed on the airline that's in the book, um, <laughs> whom, I, whom I trust a lot, I will say. I fly them frequently. Um, but also because, again, for the folks who respond in disasters, a lot of them come from from government, and uh, government has a particular trust deficit these days. And I think that again, as soon as you trip up on humanity or transparency, oh, it's a cover up. Oh, it they don't care. Oh, they're incompetent. I mean, it's a, it, it's of a cascading effect um, there. And and I think that again, that that's what I like about your approach is it's you you can't just overcome that by hypercompetence. You've got no, to actually. You can't. And
1: importantly, people overestimate it. What you're describing is a real thing. Employers overestimate worker trust by almost 40%. And B2C leaders overestimate customers by almost 50%. So there's a genuine lack of understanding about who trusts us and why.
0: Yeah. And so it's so important. I think that's uh, it could be good lessons going forward as to how you approach this and then making sure that you're 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 moving forward across all four of these and not uh, not neglecting any of them. Now, one of the things I found interesting in the book was you noted that ethnicity, gender, and sexual identity are not themselves indicators of willingness to trust, but the lived experience of those factors plays a big role in a decision to trust. And given all the work we're doing now of of recognizing uh, systemic problems, trying to address them, uh, trying to make sure we're, we're engaging underserved communities appropriately, how could someone coming into a situation without deep knowledge of, of the history of how people have lived their experience stimulate trust rather than mistrust?
1: You know, I, that was one of the things that was mind-blowing. We really had hypothesized that things like ethnicity and sexual orientation were going to have a pretty significant impact on trust. And to your point, what we found is that they weren't the best predictors of trust. Instead, how you experience life is the best predictor. And of course, that's correlated with identity. I can give you an example from my own personal experience. My partner is Dutch, and we've been married since this past January for twenty years, which is kind of crazy to think about.
0: Congratulations!
1: Well, thank you. Um, The majority of our marriage, we had to spend abroad because our Dutch our Dutch marriage wasn't recognized in the U.S. When we finally did come home after the fall of Doma, we decided to have kids here in Massachusetts. We're both on the birth certificate. Now, the problem was when we go to visit my parents in Ohio my partner is not recognized as a parent. So in order to safely go, and my, my daughter has type one diabetes and it's entirely possible she'll end up in a hospital. And without being a parent, you have no rights to see her or, t- or manage her care. So for us to feel safe and going to visit my parents, we had to adopt our own kids. Now, just because I'm gay, doesn't mean that I trust any less inherently, but you can imagine that that experience teaches you that maybe things aren't exactly equal or maybe things aren't as fair as you think they should be and you carry that with you and that does impact your trust score.
0: you know I think it's such an interesting uh, catalyst for, for changing perspective because again in my experience people will come into a situation and say well I'm trustworthy therefore there's no trust problem here you know your experience is with me that your experience is not with me until you, I, I recognize your experience with everything else in the system. And I think this pops up when we see in terms of the issues you just talked about, and the issues around policing, the issues around all, all kinds of things. It, it, that lived experience is so important and it is. it may have nothing to do with the individual who wants to be trusted, but they have to recognize that, that that's the, the situation they're walking into and the uh, the condition they have to deal with, whether it's, it's an organization um, or an individual coming into a situation. And, and rec- recognizing and validating that, that lived experience uh, to me is such an important thing to remember uh, going in.
1: It is, and it's hard because just looking at somebody you don't see lived experience and somebody on paper you don't see lived experience, it's one of those things that you really have to dig deeper into. This is why understanding each of the factors can help so much because it shows you where those deficits are. And most of our organizations show a pretty st- strong deficit on humanity and transparency in particular. Companies tend to be pretty capable and reliable. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to sell much of what they sell. Um, But there is a lot of gap to close on humanity and transparency. And to your point, I think as humans, our brains are wired to work in making assumptions. And because of the world that we live in, it's hard to, to change those assumptions, that unconscious bias. It's something that we always have to pay attention to.
0: Now, absolutely. And one of the things we've, we've talked about over and over on this podcast is the importance of, list, importance of listening and actually showing up with open eyes and open heart um, to be able to understand the situation in which you're trying to lead. And as I've looked at uh, CEOs certainly going through crises, one of the most consistent points of failure is is the uh, lack of empathy or at least lack yes. of expressed empathy. They may, they may feel it, but they're not good at showing it. Uh, and it becomes a real uh, a real disconnect. And it's I, I've, I have seen, as I've watched people and researched, it's really, really hard to recover from that. Uh, yet, as you say, if you can establish that trust early on and demonstrate that humanity and transparency, people are then more willing to trust you if something else down the road doesn't go quite as, as planned or quite as you said it would. Uh, there's a bit more forgiveness that you have available to you if you've established trust through that humanity and empathy in the beginning.
1: That's exactly right. And it's one of the things I think it's very easy to forget, particularly in an organizational setting or as a leader in a tense situation. Um, Because first of all, trust is built in moments of vulnerability and it's hard to make yourself vulnerable, particularly if you're a public company. Instead, vulnerability in, in organizations is more like transparency. And so when you're transparent, you're showing your vulnerability. On a human level, we build trust when we make ourselves vulnerable to others So understanding that is important because to some degree, you need to extend trust in order to get trust back. And we see that playing out now with how companies are treating their employees. And in our new hybrid environment, we see a struggle with productivity. And a lot of companies are now starting to try to measure productivity. How many mouse clicks? Is somebody still around? And what that really is telling you is I don't trust you to be doing your job. So I need to watch and make sure you are. That level of extending distrust earns more distrust.
0: I think it's really interesting, and I did enjoy in the book very much that you you were your data show there was a differentiation between customers and employees, um, because it's again two different groups, and we can't assume people are living one role and not living in the other role. Um, and every leader I talk to is, is complaining about talent. They've, it's tough to retain people, it's tough to attract them, it's tough to get them back into the office. So tell us a bit more about how do employees see trust differently than other stakeholders? And are there specific ways that organizations can earn their trust beyond stopping counting most clicks, which I agree with you a thousand percent is like the stupidest thing ever, ever conceived in terms of being able to engage employees?
1: Yeah, there's, we're certainly not measuring the right thing when we do that We're measuring an outcome rather than the driver of why right. that's happening. Um, well, one of the things that we found, we tested whether or not the factors would change. And as it turns out, trust, trust is human, it is an emotion after all. And so how you build trust is how you build trust. And those four factors apply whether you're a customer or whether you're an employee, because at the end of the day, you're you're the same person, you're just the same person in a different scenario. So when, when it, organizations think about how to build trust with their organization, they need to apply those same four factors. Am I giving people the ability to show up and do their jobs in a way that's possible? Am I giving them all the information they need to do that? Have I shared my motivation and helping them understand why I'm making the choices I'm making? Do they have enough information to do their jobs? And can I demonstrate to them that I actually care about them? I don't just care about their productivity. I care about how they're showing up at work, whether they're motivated, whether they're in a job that they're enjoying. Those things really drive different behaviors.
0: You know, one of the things that makes me think of uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Mikulski writes about designing from trust or the idea that we, if you start as if you trust people, um, you will get more trusted behavior. I'm wondering if your research showed that, showed that, uh, because again, if we're talking here about what employee, employers have tried to measure and how they've gone about trying to engage people, it really does start from a position of mistrust. Um, if I have to supervise your every second year, every every uh, mouse move uh, on the computer, it, it really does start from mistrust. And I, from what you've said earlier, it would sound like the mistrust breeds more mistrust and it could be, is there a sort of a community of property there where we could assume if you actually started with trust, you would build more trust and it would be self-reinforcing over time?
1: We Our research does show that to earn trust, it is easier to first extend trust. Okay. And you see this showing up in, in um, different policies that organizations have as an example, and the behaviors that, that elicits as a result. One of my favorite examples to give is the um, points attendance system. So a lot of retailers use a system where they count points and not the good kind. You get points when you have to take off a day or you're sick or you show up late to work. And at certain points in time, you earn enough points that you have a disciplinary action, ultimately leading to being excused from work. Now, what that really tells your workers is, you know, that doctor's appointment for your kid, it's less important than the job I need you to do. Or the fact that you're sick, it's less important than the job I need you to do. And of course, if that's the message you're sending, it doesn't feel very human. It doesn't feel like you care very much about me, just my product. And that makes me a lot less likely to trust
0: you. That's really interesting. And I'm, I again, I think back to the in the world of, of disaster response where the, the first thing you encounter is a person who's sitting to fill out 75 forms on the worst day of your life um <laughs> and give us lots of detail about who you are and what's going on uh, as opposed to being able to, able to help and gather that over time it's a very similar kind of situation of you're sort of you're starting the relationship with i don't trust you and you've got to earn you've got to earn my trust as a as a, as a responder as opposed to i can see this community's been devastated we're going to trust you saying what you trust what what, you, what what you're saying is true at least get things moving and it is such a different different mindset uh again I'm I remembering a story from after Hurricane Katrina so we go way back and one of the community banks um set up a table outside of one of their branches that had been destroyed and started loaning money to people and all they asked for was a signature they you know didn't you they knew. People had no records. They had nothing. And it was small amounts of money. It was a few hundred dollars per person. They had a 96% repayment rate. 96%. And that, that to me goes to show when you trust people and you trust people when they're in trouble, um, there is that natural inclination that emotional reciprocity to want to, to repay that trust. And that only does good things over time.
1: Listen, human beings are social creatures. We take energy from each other. We live together and have to live together to some degree. There are two schools of thought. When I was when I was studying, um, excuse me, when I was studying philosophy in my first year of college, I at the same time I had been reading Anne Frank for some reason. And I remember reading Thomas Hobbes, who says things like life is nasty, brutish, and short. And he believes that people are only doing good things because they're being watched. And then you have Anne Frank, who's been through I mean, wow. How does she stay positive? And at the end of her diary, she says, I believe people are truly good inside. And I tend to be in the Anne Frank camp. When you extend trust, you you elicit the best in people. And I think our data proves that out too.
0: Well, that's a great point for me to ask you my final question, which is one I ask all of my guests. We live in a pretty crazy world. What gives you hope?
1: I'm pausing a minute because the truth is a lot of things give me hope. Um, There's so many, there are more, more good things in a day than there are bad things. And I realize that I live in a fairly privileged position. So I don't always see some of the negative things going on in the world. And I think it can be really easy to get overwhelmed by all of the things that are terrifying and all of the bad things that are happening in the world. But in my patch of the woods, what I get to see are organizations who are actively starting to measure trust with their customers and their employees who care about understanding why they don't trust or why they do and are taking action to go build it. That means that they're extending that humanity, that they're trying to be transparent, that they are actively building their capability and reliability. And that gives me a ton of hope. We have a lot of room for improvement, but the more organizations and people really start thinking about those factors, the the better the world will be.
0: That's great. And it's good that you've been, it's good when your research takes you to a place where you can see good things happening and better understanding how we get there.
1: Look, we built this for leaders just like us. We needed a framework to help us understand how to create change. And I I truly believe that when we focus on trust, we build the kinds of organizations we want to be a part of, and we, we create the kinds of relationships that are exciting to be in.
0: That's great. Thank you. My guest for this episode has been Ashley Reichelt, co-author of Four Factors of Trust, How Organizations Can Earn Lifelong Loyalty. It's a truly great read. I I urge you to pick up a copy. And I recommend everyone leading through turbulence and change, apply these four factors, try and integrate them into the work you do, because I think you'll see a real difference on the other side. Trust can make all the difference. Ashley, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.